Hello and welcome to the Brazilian BA guest. We are transmitting this on LinkedIn, on my channel on LinkedIn, and on my channel on YouTube as The Brazilian BA. If you are not subscribed to that, subscribe to this channel, clicking on the bell, and be advised whenever we have a new video. I have a guest today to talk about product backlog, and my guest is Mr. Michael White. Hello, Michael. Thank you for coming. Hi, Fabricio. It's a pleasure to be here today. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I have a good question to start a conversation today. And yeah. my question is how to avoid product backlog overload. I thought you could start by saying about product backlog and overload, do some definitions. And so we can talk about how to avoid it later. What do you think about that? Yeah, that sounds good. Um... Yeah, I mean, product backlog in general is something that can be hard to manage for uh, a lot of people in Agile and business analysis. But, you know, one of the things that I would typically recommend uh, for people trying to manage backlogs is to, first off, have a clear vision, right? Understanding what the objectives are for the project. And so this typically comes in the form of a business case or in many agile environments, you might have something like a vision or vision statement that drives the objectives and the goals for the project. So, you know, typically when you have that to start, that's kind of like the North Star, right, where the organization wants to go. Um, but it also serves as a nice filter every time you have, you know, new items that come up in the backlog as well as anything that needs to be changed. You can kind of make sure that it's aligning with the things that you all have in that vision. So it's a really nice, I guess, kind of like, again, like I said, like a, a like a filtering or reference tool um, to kind of keep everything aligned. And I found that a lot of teams that are in Agile or managing backlogs, when they don't have that vision statement or a, a business case or anything like that to reference, they kind of flounder at the beginning because they're not quite sure uh, what the goals are. So you start seeing things in the backlog that maybe shouldn't be there or aren't adding the the most value that they could, right? So I would this, start there. Um, this, this, this vision or these, let's say, strategic goals are also part of the backlog, aren't they? Um, typically, you don't see them. Um, it might be something that you might post as a team or keep it, you know, visu visually. Um, usually in the backlog, you might see like your epics uh, or, you know, your features and things like that. The, the, the objectives are things like, you know, what we're trying to do. We're trying to increase customer satisfaction. We're trying to decrease this. We want to be the, you know, premier, um, you know, financial institution, you know, whatever those goals are that the organization is essentially trying to to achieve. So every organization works different. You know, typically you they might be mixed in with themes. You know, some organizations use themes in their backlog, but a lot of the times you don't necessarily see it um, in the backlog as like a backlog item. Right, because um, there's there's also the risk of people getting an overload of objectives. Yeah, and, and, and so if that's any strategic stuff, you should be 
taking some decisions about being strategic is saying what you are not doing. So exactly. uh, deciding what's the most important thing to do. What are we focusing on, at least on the next year, the next semester, or, or exactly. something, having some some yeah. commitments. Exactly, and and that leads into my next point is spending more time on pre-iteration activities, right? So these are the things like uh, defining the team charter, uh, which is a little bit different from like a project charter, but you know the team charter is one going over the goals and objectives, and two, um, you know, kind of formulating the team, how we're going to work together. Uh, what are some of our backlog processes, right? Um, creating specifications around the various types of backlog items. You know, most of us are familiar with stories, um, but how are we going to structure our uh, acceptance criteria? Um, you know, how are tasks going to be involved? How are we going to document non-functional requirements, right? That's another area where people tend to struggle, right? And so, having these types of decisions made prior to the iteration starting allows the team to just get started and kind of flow right without starting and being stagnant because these decisions aren't made there's no clarity there's no transparency when you spend you know a couple weeks having those pre-iteration activities um it allows for much more effective backlog management as well as you know, much more effective sprints or uh, iterations as well. So, um, I, I think one of the, if I could say, like one of the things that many organizations should spend more time doing is refining their pre-iteration activities. That way, when the sprint actually starts, the team can just hit the ball rolling and and be much more effective working together. It, it sounds like. A lot of over, the overflow we have in the uh, in the backlog, by what you're saying, is related to a a bad structure in the way we are managing our backlog. So, if your backlog is just a bag where you just throw in every uh, uh, desire of your customers, of your users, or everything that people are saying, oh, there's a bug over here, there's, and you just throw everything together. Yeah. The chance to get an overload is too high. So Absolutely. we should organize our backlog and give us some tips on how is a good backlog organized. Yeah, you know, I think, if, again, every organization is a little bit different. One, like I mentioned, you want to have whatever your vision, whatever document or uh, platform that contains your goal that should be something that the team continuously sees, right? Uh, again, if it's a vision statement, have that available. If you're using the product backlog, um, I'm sorry, the product roadmap as your source of the goals, then make that visible to the team. So there should be always something visual that the team can see. Um, and then, you know, get agreement on how we're going to structure the backlog. Are we going to use epics and then are we going to use features? Are we going to break the epics down into features or are we going to go from epics directly to the stories, right? So these are decisions that need to be made prior in order to um, get things flowing, right? And then there is the structure of the items themselves. So if we're dealing with stories, 
who's going to manage the stories? Is it going to be the business analyst? Is it going to be the product owner? Um, and also, how are we going to structure our acceptance criteria, right? That's one of the major issues around product backlog uh, overload, right? One, the developers not understanding the structure, or two, maybe the person who's writing the acceptance criteria, maybe they're not putting enough in, maybe they're not structuring it consistently. So having a standard or a structure around the acceptance criteria is a major uh, best practice for managing um, that, that type of overload, right? Because that's gonna allow the developers to know, one, when the story's done, two, what the outcome should look like, right? They'll know how to test it if you have a really good and clear set of acceptance criteria, right? Um, and also making coming up to agreements around other types of backlog items, right? Tasks, right? How are the developers going to add that? Are they going to associate it with a particular story? Um, also spikes and research items. Uh, are these going to be things that we need to account for in our velocity or are these things that are going to be visible in the backlog as well right we need to know these types of things ahead of time so that when they come up they're not serving as these roadblocks right these are things that we can anticipate ahead of time so that you know when they come up we know what they are we recognize them but then we move on right so there are a lot of different things um that we that we should be having these agreements on and and then also you know the definition concepts right the clear definition of ready the clear definition of done right even uh the definition of delivery right and that goes a little bit beyond just the it work these are some things that you know we're ready to deliver but they might require some outside resources like marketing or training or things like that so having clarity i think you know in that first two weeks prior to the sprint can really um, be beneficial for the team. Um, I think another thing too is having kind of boundaries around who can manage the backlog, right? We don't want everyone on the team just adding items, right? We should have a, everything should maybe funnel through the business analyst or everything should funnel through the product owner, unless it's something technical where the developers are adding things but that goes outside of prioritization. So we don't worry about that. But in terms of the things that are gonna be impacted by priority, we wanna have a tight boundary around who can add items, who can modify items and things like that. That way there's clarity and there's transparency as well. And the, fir the first time you answered, you mentioned uh, something that got my attention that was about functional uh, non-functional requirements yeah usually there is a lot of doubt on, on that mm -hmm. and it it sounds for me sometimes that when we are dealing with a product backlog we're dealing with ethics and stories as you said trying to connect those with goals that are in a, in a product roadmap uh, and there are requirements related to functional and non-functional requirements with business yeah. rules and the connection between stories and requirements is not sometimes so, so clear. Like if stories were not requirements, but they are. And, right. and, and they can be talking about different types of requirements simultaneously for 
to understand a story, we may have different types of requirements in the same story. We may we may need to build something in the system that's a functionality, a functional requirements, some yeah. something that the system must do, and the system must be able to deal with a certain number of user or requests, and that's a non-functional requirement in different channels or something like, like that. And to take some decisions, this functionality may be based on some business rules. And so this description of rules, uh, uh, functional requirements and non-functional requirements, sometimes seems more less what the developers must do and more like what the system must do or the solution must take care in a continuous way and can... Uh, uh, and can improve. It could uh, be re-evaluated or, or versioned during time. So those are different types of informations. And yes. that sometimes I feel like brings some kind of overload when people are rewriting stories to change a functional requirement that already exists in the past, but they're right. just trying to bring some new characteristics. Let's say there's a report and they just want to add an additional data over there. Uh, how can people deal with that uh, to avoid this overload and try to bring some consistency and structure for their backlog? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, again, having a plan and having that transparency. Um, a lot of the times, we talked about a few things. So I'm going to start with the non-functional because I think that's an area that a lot of people have issues with. Um, so the team definitely needs to come to an agreement on how they're going to be documenting non-functional requirements. I've seen it work several different ways. Um, you know, a lot of the times the non-functional requirements is not just for a specific function. It's for the system as a whole. So sometimes it might be a good idea to make the decision to just have one giant story with the non-functional requirements, or you can have a whole require a whole story itself just committed to uh, the non-functional requirement itself, right? Um, I've also seen it where the non-functional requirements are kind of specified out in the definition of done, right? So I think it really depends on the types of non-functional requirements that are related to what you're building. But again, it all goes towards consistency and transparency and getting agreement with the team that this is how we're going to handle these non-functional requirements. Same thing with, um, you know, reporting requirements and things like that. Do we want to just have a separate story and label it? You know, these are reporting stories, and then we can outline those specifications there. These are the business rule stories, and then outline the specific specifications there. So I think, you know, using whatever tool you're using, if it's Jira, TFS, or whatever, being familiar with the functionality, you know, the labeling of that. Um, but again, it's something the team has to commit to um, and, and have that transparency, right? Um, but also, if you have that funnel where it is limited to who has the ability to create the stories, right? So if it is just the BA and the product owner, those two participants need to work together to stick to that model and also communicate that out to the team, right? These are the reporting requirements. These are the non-functional requirements. So this is what you can expect. Um, because a lot of the times those roadblocks that we're seeing 
with backlogs not moving along is people are really just confused. They're sitting there, they're floundering. And, you know, a lot of that could be prevented with just having a game plan. Okay. I, I believe that people who may watch this episode and, and listen us to talk about uh, product backlog may have different levels of maturity in their organizations dealing with backlog. Yes. Some organizations are really refining their backlog in the way that we are mentioning. And for some other organizations, maybe they're just dealing with the problem that people don't even respect the backlog. Yes. So when you are in the middle of a project, people are not doing what is specified on the backlog. They're just doing what the user is telling them to do in the exact moment. So, so even those sprints or iterations are not delivering what they are supposed to do because yeah. people don't respect the backlog. So yes. for those who are in that situation, what's your recommendation? It's not just an overflow problem in the backlog. It's an overflow everywhere. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think their communication becomes really, really key, right? One, you want to first identify that you know, the backlog isn't being respected and define what that means, right? If it's people aren't, uh, you know, practicing what we call proper backlog hygiene, where they're not changing the statuses or they're not, you know, we're getting duplicate stories or duplicate backlog items. Um, we need to identify that and bring it forth, you know, have that open communication, whether it's during um, standups or if it's during the, um, you know, the retrospectives, we need to, be comfortable bringing, raising these items, right? And also not just raising the items, but also being able to articulate the impact of the product backlog, backlog not being respected or the process not being followed, right? Um, and I'm also a big advocate of whenever I uh, raise an issue, I like to follow up with some type of resolution as well so that it's not like I'm complaining, it is you know trying to resolve an actual problem, right? So you definitely wanna be able to one, articulate the impact of those things, as well as come up with a recommendation on how to move forward. So being very um, intentional during the times that we do have structured uh, environments, such as during the standups, the retrospectives, even if during a review session, if time permits, you can kind of talk about um, how we can do some of these things a little more effectively. Um, but again, I think a lot of that comes with the team uh, at the very beginning, you know, coming when, when I mentioned that team charter way ahead, you know, the team respecting one another and allowing that open feedback um, and allowing for safety, you know, people should feel comfortable being able to raise issues as soon as they happen so that we can resolve them as quickly as possible. Um, because sometimes people don't realize the impact of not respecting the backlog, right? So again, I think being able to articulate that might build some empathy on their end to say, okay, well, I didn't realize that by me not doing this, this is th that will cause this issue, right? So there, I think communication becomes really, really important. I like the definition of the team 
charter that you mentioned. And, yes. and it would solve a lot of problems if we spend some time before starting to have a predefined method or methodology where we are working on. And it's not just about the backlog items. It's about who is responsible for putting things on the backlog, for prioritizing the backlog, for defining the structure of the backlog, as you said. So yeah. if we have, if we could have this very well structured from the beginning, life would be so easier. And I think you did, you gave us a very interesting tip if you don't have this from the beginning, use your retrospectives to do that. Use your, yeah. your stand-up meeting. You, you should have create times if you don't have it. If your method is not even respecting retrospectives, let's say, you should create times for open conversation to discuss yeah. not just the requirements of your product or of your project, but your method of working. That's the important yeah. thing you're bringing. Absolutely. Yeah. And another thing I, I didn't really get to mention is um, the importance of having a clear refinement process, right? Um, you definitely want to have a clear refinement process prior to, or grooming, depending on what your team calls it, prior to the, the iteration planning or the sprint planning, right? Because you want to have the opportunity for the developers to ask their questions, right? Um, this is also where a lot of the design questions are going to be asked, right? And so this is important because one, you're getting feedback from the development team and you should be able to articulate to them, you know, what it's supposed to be. And that's going to let you know whether or not your format of acceptance criteria is clear or not, right? So you're, you're getting feedback even during these refinement or grooming sessions as well. So really any time that you are communicating with development or the product team, it should be a way for you to get some type of feedback to let you know whether or not the, 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 uh, the method you're taking or the approach you're taking is optimal for that particular project because we all know that um, every project is different, right? So just being really open to receiving that feedback and making accommodations or adjustments to uh, act on that feedback is really important when it comes to managing that backlog. I want to come back to this uh, idea of developing your requirements in your stories. But before going uh, into this detail, let, let me bring you some question here from, I'm not sure if I will mention his name correctly, Mania. Uh, do you mean uh, we do not need to create a user store for non-functional requirements? When you're explaining the approach, all those different approaches for non-functional requirements, could you make it more clear what options may be available? Yeah. So yes. So um, there's there's several different ways to to document non-functional requirements. So like I mentioned, you know, some people who might not be as familiar with the concept, they think, oh, there's a non-functional requirement for every functional requirement. And it's really not a one-to-one -one situation. You might have five non-functional requirements and like a hundred functional requirements, right? So because the non-functional requirements don't always directly relate to an individual functional requirement, which is a user story and the acceptance criteria, right? Sometimes you might just have one entire story or backlog item that lists out the various 
non-functional requirements, almost like a checklist of non-functional requirements. Or you can, um, so that's one way to have like maybe one backlog item that represents all of the non-functional requirements, or depending on the size and the amount of effort it takes to execute that non-functional requirement, you can just have a backlog item for some of the larger um, non-functional requirements individually. And then maybe you compare some of the smaller non-functional items, you know, into group them into one story or backlog item, right? So you want, it's, it's the use of user story. They, they might, they're technically not user stories, um, but they are stories. They might just be called backlog items and you might label them something different. Um, so they, they don't necessarily need to be in the form of a user story. Now, sometimes you can address non-functional requirements in the form of acceptance criteria as well. So for example, if a non-functional requirement is around performance or timing or response time, in your acceptance criteria, you can say something like, given this, you know, when I do that, the system does this within 30 seconds or something like that. So addressing your non-functional requirements within acceptance criteria is another approach. So there's various ways to uh, document the non-functional requirements in a backlog. I think one, it depends on what works best for the team and two, how related those non-functional requirements are to the actual functional requirements, right? Which are the stories and the acceptance criteria. Um, so just as long as they're documented somewhere, but there's no right or wrong way. Like I said, I've seen it work in, in various ways. Um, again, another way that I've seen it is documenting it out in the form of, you know, the rules of the definition of done, you know, checking when you're validating that it's done, making sure that those non-functional requirements are accounted for as well. So I think the most important thing is the transparency of it. So whatever the team agrees on, as long as it's out there so that everybody knows what to do and how to approach one, how to document those non-functional requirements and where to document them. Uh, I can share a little bit of my experience on that. And, and I like it very much the way you presented the non-functional requirements as a checklist. I always try to think about them as a checklist that should be checked, especially those functional requirements that covers the whole bunch of functional requirements. For example, let's say that my I have a non-functional requirement saying that my 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 system should work on Google Chrome, right? Version 10. And, and, and that's a non-functional requirement. Whatever new functionality I create or whatever user's story that I create must be tested against this specification. So this is a checklist. So it should work on Google Chrome. It should have a, a, a time of response no more than 10 seconds. It should be, how do you say, when we just change uh your phone uh, uh, from one perspective to another it's, yeah uh, so it should be adaptable there's a beautiful yeah. for that right it should be in english and portuguese it should <laughs> th th those items are a very good checklist that you should right. check for every functionality you create yes and they are not really very in, in my experience well uh created in the backlog because Every time you create a new user store, you will run through that 
checklist all over again. So if it's a user story and this user story was done uh, in the past, it doesn't mean it's going to be done for new user stories. So mm -hmm. probably some kind of document, there's a lot of different approaches, as you said, but something that you come back and recheck and test it again for every new functionality is very useful for, for non-functional requirements. That's, that's my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, it goes to transparency and communication, right? You know, having the team, you know, these are the general types of non-functional requirements. We got usability, we've got performance, localization. So like you were saying with the language and things like that, these are the things that we want to make sure that we're considering, right? And then we can get into uh, based on how this team operates, because every agile team is different working together. How do we think we want to document this in the most effective way based on the type of product that we're trying to build? Okay. Let me come back to the detailing of the requirements. So I have a user story and user stories could be described in very different levels of abstraction. Yes. And so you, you mentioned the, the importance of having a grooming session or something that we can uh, detail those requirements. Can't I have the problem of having very detailed user stories in a level that's very specific for implementation. And so I have an overload of, of my backlog and it's almost difficult to manage and, and prioritize because there's so much requirements, but if you look for them, they're really small and they, my user stories are so detailed and like written by a programmer and not by a user in mm. itself. Yeah. Yeah, I think again, that goes into and sometimes it's important to have that formal training. If you if if you feel like a team is or an organization is not documenting requirements in a way that's effective, sometimes getting formal training on these types of things is really needed, right? Because user stories are exactly that. They're user stories. A user should be able to read the story and then see, okay, this is the flow. Once I do this, this should happen, right? Um, because it's always supposed to be from the user perspective. We're not looking at, you know, as a developer and blah, 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 like those or as a system, those are not really user stories in terms of best practice, right? Um, so having clarity around what the user story is supposed to be and when, right? So again, you know, we you should and gain agreement on going through those cycles of priority and estimating, right? So, you know, we might start off with a list of um, epics that gives us a high level overview of the scope of the project, right? Gain an agreement, agreement with the product owner. So is this the real scope of the product? Is this really at a high level, everything we need, right? Getting that agreement, right? And then, you know, having a high level priority of that these are this epic is big this epic is medium this epic is small right so that high level priority um and then or sizing you know how whichever one is signif significant at that time um and then going into that gradual decomposition process right so at the right time prior to 
the next iteration, we, we, we see, okay, these are the epics that need to get broken down into the stories, or these are the stories we're going to bring forward. At this point, they're just stories. And so sometimes, you know, that's where you would want to go through that exercise of decomposing that story into the detailed acceptance criteria. Um, for me, I, I always default to the Gherkin format because I feel like that's a very user-friendly uh, format. Um, also, another, if you're dealing with a lot of data, using the checklist format. And I, I think having um, awareness of the proper structures around those and, and when it's better to use this type of format or that type of format can be really helpful as well, right? Because um, one, you know, a user story, the first person that's supposed to do the acceptance for the user story is the product owner. So the product owner is supposed to be able to say, okay, this is the story. These are the steps. This is what I know is done. And then, yes, this is my acceptance. The developer, well, I, actually, that's a little bit backwards. The developer is first supposed to be able to go through the flow and say, okay, these, this is what I'm building and this is what I'm coding. But the acceptance criteria should be laid out in a way that allows them to say, yes, what I have built is correct. Now, let me give this to the product owner to do the initial acceptance, right? And then, you know, they'll say, okay, yeah, it looks good. Now we can give it to QA and then we can take it to UAT, right? So um, I think understanding the level of, you know, knowing that it's supposed to be human, you know, acceptance criteria is typically supposed to be human readable, right? In humanistic language. Um, so I think that's an important element that that often gets missed right i mean there are things that you might need to add like calculations and things like that where you know you might need to add that into a story if appropriate right if it is a calculation um but this also um is where we start looking at supplemental documentation right not everything has to be a story right if something requires data mapping or calculations we can attach more detailed documentation to that story so that the developer can reference. We can attach a, a use case. We can attach a wireframe. That's what supplemental documentation is for to enhance the, um, the understanding of that user story. So every user story might not require that minute level of detail, but if it does, we can use that supplemental documentation to support that story. Uh -uh. It's interesting when when you think about all the details that are available and how sometimes programmers start doing business analysis job and they try to codify uh, communication as they do with computers. And we should not do that. We are not dealing with machines. We're not we're dealing with people. And even with machines, we are more and more dealing with AI, which talks the same communication as we do. So right. if you're writing for good people to understand, that's probably the best approach. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's sometimes, you know, we we do come across that where we have, like you said, the, the developers trying to do BA work where they're writing these stories or it might be a task that gets misassigned. And so that's where we we come in as the BAs to say, hey, you know, can we get this in, or maybe we can translate it into something that the product owner can actually verify right mm -hmm. prior to approving it into the this 
the iteration, right? So um, again, I think that's where, you know, the the team forming uh, dynamic kind of comes into place, you know, okay, we don't want developers doing this because of X, Y, Z, but if a developer does this, you know, funnel it through the BA so that we can reorganize it and structure it in a way that the product owner can actually understand and actually verify, right? So um, I think a lot of the times, again, there's always so many different types of people that have their own experience and their own background and their own practices. So this is why we need to come together early on and say, hey, this is what I'm used to, you know, whatever, and then come to an agreement as to what works. And in addition, having that open feedback to when we're identifying things that's not working for this team, we need to be able to pivot to do something different. Perfect. There are some situations where the backlog gets too big. And even if they are written, let's say, in the correct form, but you may have product backlogs with 4,000 items or 4,000 user stories over there. And you see that some of those stories have are there for two years and nobody takes care of that. And yeah. when you start reading of those, you don't even know if they are still valid user stories or not. Yeah. Uh, for those people who are in these situations, what are your recommendations? Yeah, again, I think that's where having that clear vision helps, right? Because if you're seeing, if, if you're seeing you've got a, a big list of stories and nobody's doing anything with them, chances are if you go back to that vision or go back to your goals and objectives, that story might not even really be something that's in alignment with that goal. This story might not even really be helping achieve that goal, right? So you uh, this goes back to using um, your vision statement or your business case as a filter, right? So we, if we've got all these things, we're going to, one, uh, you know, align these up to this vision and see if these stories are actually going to be supporting our goals and objectives. If they're not, we can automatically get rid of them because they're not really, you know, really within scope anyway. So let's just get rid of those. Um, and we do know that Agile does leave room for flexibility. So I do want to leave space for that as well um, for potential, you know, enhancements down the line and things like that. So I think that also goes into planning as well, having a structured process for um, future items and, and you know, um, enhancement requests down the line and things like that. So there is a place for that. But when it gets so big, we have to go back to that original vision statement and seeing if these stories are still even aligned with what we originally intended. And if not, you can just get rid of them. Okay. Carnival J is asking, isn't that what backlog grooming is for? And he compliments led by the product owner. Um, I would say that backlog grooming is actually to make sure that everyone is really clear on what the story is asking for. Um, the backlog grooming should be a way to make sure that the developer has time to discuss some of the design details, making sure that we've articulated the acceptance criteria enough so that the developers are able to estimate or size the story appropriately, right? 
So backlog grooming to me is more of a, um, we're not always going back to the goals at that point. We're not, we're making sure that the backlog items are clear, that they're structured and that they're ready to be worked on. When you leave a backlog grooming session, you should have a list of stories that are ready to be worked on by the developers with very little need for additional questions and things like that. So those types of things should be handled during those grooming sessions. Right. And so the grooming session would not have all the backlog, but the backlog that we are supposed to talk. I, I like the definition of a story as a invitation to a chat. So when I'm writing a user story, I'm not writing a full specification of my requirements with everything you need to know about that. It's right. just a card that invites us for a very good chat and I can explain you more. And if we think that this story worth it is worth to the to be developed, we can create additional documentation on that and we can specify it better in the yeah. appropriate moment. Yeah. And another thing that I didn't mention earlier when we talked about backlog grooming or refinement is you know, it's also a tool to prepare the items for the planning session, right? Because when you have your iteration planning, the team's coming together to say, okay, these are the stories, this is our velocity, you know, this is what's going to go in the upcoming sprint or iteration. You want to have well understood stories because decisions are going to be made at this planning session, right? And so you don't want to spend the planning session asking questions of clarification about the backlog items, right? You want to go into the planning session with a clear set of stories. That way, the decisions made can be well-informed. Right. So for the planning session, I should have a list of requirements that we understood, that we in some way measured or, 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 or estimated so we can make our planning session work and, and not have to lose or, or, or spend the time of that planning session making estimation or understanding there's a another question here and thanks for asking carnival j it's, it's a pleasure to have questions here how is what to describe it about a, a, a grooming backlog different from requirements um backlog grooming and refinement are interchangeable to me um, usually a backlog grooming session and a backlog refinement session are the same. Uh, well, and let me say it like this. Uh, it, says it, it, it may be a terminology issue. Yeah. Uh, usually they, they use different terms, but maybe the same different. I'll, 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 I'll rephrase it. Actually, backlog refinement is more, is a broader umbrella term. So backlog refinement might include grooming. It might include prioritization and other things, right? Grooming is a little more specific to making sure their stories are good. But backlog refinement is a little bit of a broader term that might incorporate some additional things that are maybe outside of just grooming itself. So maybe that can help um, Carnival J. With perfect, perfect. Yeah. And, and, and terminology is always an issue when we are talking about those stuff because people use, the, uh, I see very often people use terminology differently, but I like when we have some some good definitions and can clarify, uh, uh, clarify those definitions. It, it, it makes yes. our conversation better. There's another question here. Who else other than a product owner assist a business analyst in backlog grooming? Yeah, uh, I think it really depends on the organization. Usually when you're saying grooming, 
at the grooming session, you would have, you know, maybe the product owner, the VA and the developers, because the, the developers are the ones we want to make sure that the developers can understand the stories. So the developers are the ones who are asking the questions of clarification, trying to, because they need all the information they can so that they can think about the design aspects of the story itself. Because a lot of the design aspects of uh, a backlog happens at the cleaning session. So they wanna make sure that they understand the work that they need, the technical work that they need to do. They also wanna be able to say whether or not it's big or small or medium or give it whatever score or pointing size they wanna do it. So to answer your question, the developers are really the ones that are assisting us make sure that what we have is refined enough for them to understand. So I feel like if they're still asking questions, that's additional refinement work that I need to do as the VA or the product owner. Um, or if, you know, that'll give them time to say like, okay, I, this seems like it might be a lot of work. We might, this might be too big for one story. We might need to split it, right? So that's also things that we're doing during those refinement sessions as well, right? So I think outside of the product owner, the developers definitely need to be there because they're the audience at that point. We The, the backlog is for them to work on. Right. And, and when you say developers, this is also a term that can be ambiguous and can involve different types of experts. Everyone who is related to developing is, it could be part of this. I have seen that usually quality assurance analysts or testers are very good in helping to understand different aspects and to define criteria about what's is this user story the same that the other one because they have this vision about how they are going to test it at the yes. end and they help to understand the requirements very well. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm glad that you mentioned QA because I like to I do like to have QA in there as well because QA is very good at helping me make sure that my acceptance criteria is testable, right? Because they should be able to take the acceptance criteria that I create as the VA and then expand upon those acceptance criteria into full-blown test cases, right? So yes, you would definitely want to have QA there as well. Um, because they want to make sure that the, because you want to make sure as the VA that your acceptance criteria is testable. Right. So Carnival J, thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, for answers. I'm also a VA, which is why I'm interested and curious. Welcome, yes. Carnival. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. So let's say that people are looking for more information about that about this terminology you mentioned a lot of stuff that in your uh, while you were presenting that I, I i didn't interrupt you because i i gave those uh, or i took those concepts as known by everyone but i know that they don't they are not like you mentioned spikes you mentioned retrospectives you mentioned yeah. planning you mentioned uh, 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 a, a lot of different concepts that people might need to know better or wanting to 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 learn more about that. And what do you suggest for people who want to get more information on dealing with their product backlogs and especially with all those concepts that they have to engage and become more familiar with this vocabulary? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, the Agile Alliance is a really good source of, I don't want to say source of truth, but it's like one of the, you know, uh, bodying bodies around Agile. I think they're really good, um, a really good resource around, you know, understanding those general terms and things like that. So I would start there. Um, I think any book you can get on Agile or um, Agile terminology is, is really good. Um, I talk a lot about it on my website. Um, you know, a lot of different terminologies in general, you know, not just Agile terminologies, but business analysis terminology. So I, I think being intentional about wanting to understand that stuff, um, things will just start appearing to you, right? But if I were to say as a starting point, I would definitely say um, the Agile Alliance website um, is, is a good place to start. Perfect, perfect. And how about you, Michael? I know, I, I, I know that you mentioned your website have some information. And let's use these final moments just to talk a little bit about what can people find into your website? What is the address? Where can people find more information about you? Yeah, thank you oh, for that. This, this is your space for a commercial, right? Yeah, my commercial space. <laughs> uh, well, you can definitely learn more about me at uh, thebadoc.com. So that's T-H-E-B-A-D-O-C.com. You know, I have several articles about business analysis. I have a glossary of terms there, quotes, all, all these fun things about business analysis. Um, and you can definitely learn more about the courses that I offer you know, business analysis training, IIBA certification, as well as one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching as well. So it's, I don't want to say it's a one-stop shop, but it's definitely a good resource for business analysts who want to, um, you know, expand on their career trajectory. So uh, you can always, uh, you know, you can follow me on uh, LinkedIn at the, the business analysis doctor, also YouTube, wherever, uh, social medias, I typically have the same, the same handle, um, either the business analysis doctor or the BA doc. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm it, wherever you look for me, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. I, 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 just not to end this session, losing some stuff. Is there any important ingredient for a backlog management that we didn't mention that it, and you think it's important for us to, to say today? Um, yeah, I would just, I, I think we did cover this, but I think more organizations do need to spend more time on those pre-iteration activities, right? So, you know, I, I, I coach or train a lot of people who have never he even heard of a team charter, right? So those types of prepar uh, iteration preparation activities are so, so, so important for understand for you know setting up the team for success and setting up those iterations for success um because you don't want to try to figure it all out as you go because you know it just leads to roadblocks so you can make everybody's job just a little bit easier by spending that first couple of weeks forming the team coming up with the agreements defining the processes getting everybody on the same page. I would say that would be the number one thing is that that defining that team charter and, and everyone getting uh, in alignment with 
what their roles are, what their responsibilities are, what the process is. Right. And I guess that a lot of people may may feel like disappointed that, oh, we should have done this before. Probably they should, uh, but there is still time. So stop and think about your team. You're not just building a product. You're also building a team that must work together. And so right. dedicate some time for building your your way of working. Is that correct? Did I got it right? Absolutely. It's it's you know agile is is product based and process based. It's not all about the product build build build. You have to have a clearly defined process in order for it to work. And the problem is, you know, a lot of people think agile. Oh, it's you know it's quick. We we don't need documentation. But there is still a structure and a standard that you should have to make it effective, right? So you definitely don't want to lose that. Perfect, perfect. And yeah. there's some thanks here. Thank you for these insights about Agile product backlog. Yeah, you're very also thanking as well. So thank you guys for, for watching and, and for following us and bringing your questions and comments. It was a pleasure to have you guys here. And it was a pleasure to have you, Michael. It's a so enlightening session. I learned it a lot, uh, very useful. I will end this uh, this session right now, but I ask you to stay a, a little longer after I close, so we can chat a little bit after, uh, right. uh, after the session. Sounds All right. Like fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. So, bye bye for everyone else. See you in the next episode. Bye.